0: Good morning. morning. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 through 3, verse 8 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The word of the Lord.
1: Um, my wife, uh, Jenny, and I were in Chicago a few years ago. We go up often to visit family, and on this particular night, we were leaving a local restaurant on Rush Street, and while we were walking back to our car, I saw this big billboard. It was an ad for Lululemon um, on the side of a building. Um, Lululemon, if you knew anything about them, it's an athletic clothing brand, but they also have a particular focus on yoga, which has its roots in Eastern spirituality. So, with them, it's not only about physical fitness, it's also there's a, a spiritual component in their brand and in their marketing. And if you know anything about Eastern spirituality, one of the main ideas is that our experience of being unique individuals is really an illusion, and you need to be liberated from that. And by the way, if you're exploring faith, it's important to say Eastern spiritual traditions are ancient, they're serious and they're worth taking seriously, if only to understand what they're actually saying so you can evaluate them alongside other worldviews. But here's this ad I saw, and what it is, you can't see it, but I'm going to explain it to you. What it is, is there's a list here of virtues or values, things like compassion, patience, acceptance, humility, stillness, Uh, generosity, nonviolence, things like that. And then down at the bottom here in big letters in all caps, it says, this is you. This is brilliant marketing. Because what they're doing is weaving a story and inviting you to be the hero of this story. But The really amazing thing about this list, and and it's the reason I took the picture in the first place, is right in the middle of this list, it says self-discovery. Not losing yourself, which is what Eastern spirituality would encourage you to do, because that would never sell in the West. No, self-discovery is all about finding yourself. In other words, this ad isn't just telling you, um, inviting you into, uh to be the hero of a story, it's inviting you to be the hero of a story that's all about somebody who finds themselves, someone who discovers themselves. And you don't have to think very long or hard about this to realize that that is the central most cherished narrative in our modern western culture. It's a narrative that says this, Life is a quest to find your true authentic self and express that self to the world. That is a powerful narrative. Here's the amazing thing. When you look at what the Bible, and especially Jesus has to say about what it means to have a self and what it means to become yourself, one of the things you'll find is that on the one hand, Unlike Eastern traditions, Jesus says, well, actually, you really do have a unique individual self. It's real. But on the other hand, when Jesus talks about what it means to have a self and to become the self you're meant to be, what he says about it is radically different from what our modern Western narrative says about it. How is that? What does that mean? This parable we just read helps us understand what that means. We're in a series in which we're looking at the parables of Jesus. The parables of Jesus are pictures of God and his world that Jesus gives us so we can walk around in that world and get a clearer picture of reality. This parable gives us a clearer picture of what it means to have a self and especially what it means to become the self that you were meant to be. What does that mean? Let's walk through this parable and see Jesus shows us three things, and each one of them builds on the first. So, it begins with an exalted picture of humanity. Next, Jesus shows us a redeemed picture of redemption. And lastly, He shows us a new picture of repentance, okay? There's an exalted picture of humanity, a redeemed picture of redemption, and lastly, a new picture of of repentance. So let's start with this exalted picture of humanity. Um, at the very beginning, let's get the setting. Luke chapter 15 begins by saying this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. If you were here last week, you may remember that this word grumble is a specific word that the Bible uses to talk about grumbling against God and against God's purposes in the world. Grumble, 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 grrr. Why were the religious leaders so angry at Jesus? It's because he was welcoming sinners and eating with them. Now, even in our culture, eating a meal with somebody is a big deal, but in that culture, it was an even bigger deal Eating a meal with someone was a huge social cue that said, I affirm you, I approve you, I accept you, I identify with you. The religious leaders were angry because eating with sinners was a way of affirming them. And so, Jesus tells three parables in a row in Luke 15 as a way of responding to the grumbling of the religious leaders. Now, The very last parable, he tells, is the parable of the prodigal son. It's one of his most famous parables of all time. We actually did a sermon series on that a few years ago. But the second parable about this woman looking for a lost coin is not as famous, but it's really worth looking at. And if we do, one of the first things we see is this. Notice there's a progression in these three parables. In the first parable, there are 100 sheep and one is lost. In the second parable about the woman with the, looking for the coin, there are 10 coins, and one is lost. And in the last parable, there are two sons, and one is lost. Jesus is upping the stakes here very gradually. He's going from a 1% loss to a 10% loss to a 50% loss. He's saying, hey, can you feel the weight that of, of the human value that is being lost here? But even more than just affirming the worth and value of human beings in general, when this woman is sweeping with her, her uh, to find her coin, when she finds the coin and she calls all of her friends to celebrate with her, right after that, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Notice Jesus says, one, Just one human being is worth all the joy of heaven. Just one. Friends, I don't think we really realize how staggering this is. Because in our culture, we just take for granted the inherent worth, value, and dignity of every unique individual. We take it for granted. To us, it's just like, well, duh, Captain Obvious. But why is it so obvious to us? Many people would just assume, well, it's because we're modern, scientific, morally enlightened people, as we humbly pat ourselves on the back. But why is this so obvious to us? If you ask historians about this, in other words, experts, whose job it is to do the actual research on this, not just something they read on the internet, but real history, historians will consistently tell us that the reason our culture put such an emphasis on individual dignity and human rights is a direct result of the impact of Christianity on the moral imagination of our world for the last 2,000 years. So for instance, Friedrich Nietzsche was one of the most famous atheists who ever lived. He hated Christianity, but Nietzsche is actually one of our dear friends here at Central West End Church because he was so honest about history. So in one of his books, he says this, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. He's saying that if you get rid of Christianity, you're also getting rid of certain moral ideas. What are these moral ideas he's talking about? Well, this is what he says. Christianity represents the counter-movement to any morality of breeding, of race, privilege. It is the gospel preached to the poor and base, the general revolt of all the downtrodden, the wretched, the failures, the less favored against race, against superiority, against superior human beings. Where do we get these ideas of individual dignity and human rights? Nietzsche says Christianity. And by the way, it's not just here. He said it over and over and over and over again. And by the way, please understand, this does not mean that if you don't believe in God, you can't believe in human rights. I've never met an atheist who doesn't believe in human rights. Part of the reason for that is the impact of Christianity in our culture. But another main reason is because the Bible tells us in Romans 2 that God has installed a moral GPS in every single human being. That means you don't need to believe in God to believe in human rights. You do, however, need for there to be a God for there to be rights to believe in. Now, one more thing before we move on. Not only is Jesus affirming the individual worth, value, and dignity of every individual here, he's also affirming the full equality of every individual. I mean, these parables, each one of them, uh, Jesus is elevating the status of tax collectors and sinners to equal status in society, but this parable in particular would have been especially shocking to his Jewish listeners, because in this parable, Jesus uses a woman as an image for God and God's work in this world. If you read through the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of Luke, which is where this parable comes from, you will see over and over again how Jesus elevates women. And again, this is one of those things that historians are constantly pointing out to us, that one of the big reasons that our culture puts such an emphasis on women's rights is because of the impact of Christianity in our society. And I recognize that this is an especially sensitive area right now, and that Christians have done a horrible job with this over the centuries, but this issue wouldn't even be on our radar if it wasn't for Christianity. So again, one of the other historians we like to engage quite a bit here is a fellow named Tom Holland, not the Spider-Man actor. He's also not a Christian. He is a world-class historian, and um, his most recent book is all about the impact that Christianity has had on the moral imagination of our world. And one of the things he talks about is the impact it's had in this area of women's rights. So for instance, in the ancient world, men especially powerful men, could demand sex from pretty much anyone they wanted. And the church said, no, you don't do that. You can't do that anymore. Why? Why did the church say that? Tom Holland says the reason is because Christianity taught us, as he says, that the human body was not an object, not a commodity to be used by the rich and powerful as and when they pleased. 2,000 years of Christian sexual morality had resulted in widely taking this for granted. Had it not, then hashtag me too would have had no force. Friends, here's the point. Jesus is giving us an exalted picture of humanity here. Whenever we talk about what it means to have a self and to become our true self, that conversation can't even begin unless we understand the picture that Jesus is giving us here. It's an exalted view of humanity. But secondly, Jesus shows us a redeemed picture of redemption. In in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables that are all about redemption because they're all about finding something that was lost. And by definition, redemption means winning or gaining back something valuable that was lost. Now, the challenge in our culture is we tend to have this distorted picture of of redemption, especially when we talk about it in religious terms, this distorted picture that says, well, the, the, the people God is redeeming weren't worth very much to begin with, just a bunch of worthless sinners. But one of the things that's so distinctive about this parable is the extreme lengths that this woman goes through in order to find this lost coin. I mean, it talks about her lighting a lamp and sweeping her house and not just seeking, but seeking diligently until she finds it. And um, in this parable, Jesus is saying the extreme lengths that God will go through to find a human being. Just one lost person. For God, it's like a big operation. He gets all of his tools together. He's going to grab a lamp so he can see what he's doing. He's going to grab a broom so he can sweep every nook and cranny. He's not just going to seek. He's going to seek diligently. And then when God finds that one lost person, he calls all of the angels together to rejoice with him. In fact, listen, the big idea, I mean the big idea in all of these parables in Luke 15, that Jesus is hammering home here, is that joy, the utter absolute joy that God takes in every single human being. Is that a picture of something that's worthless? No way. No way. But here's the challenge. Jesus does say that we're lost. What does that mean? Gertrude Stein was one of the most famous writers of the early 20th century. Um, She once went to San Francisco uh, to do a book tour. She was a writer. She's promoting her book. While she was in San Francisco, she remembered her childhood home uh, where she grew up in Oakland, the house she grew up in, There was where the magic was. There was where the wonderful memories were. There was where that love and that belonging and that meaning and that purpose was. It was all there in her childhood home. So she took a ferry across the bay to go back to her childhood home. But when she got there, the house had been torn down. And so she wrote one of the most famous and one of the most tragic lines in all literature. She said, there is no there there. She was homesick. But when she went back, the home that she was sick for was gone. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel homesick in this world? Do you ever have this deep longing for things like meaning, purpose, connection, belonging? And every once in a while, maybe you get just a little glimmer, a little whiff of it, but as soon as you try to grab hold, it's gone. There is no there there. And when that happens, you're just left with this aching homesickness in the pit of your stomach. Why do we feel that way? When Jesus talks about us being lost, he's tapping into the main storyline of the whole Bible that God created this world to be a place of goodness, wholeness, beauty, and perfection. And he put the first human beings right in the center of it. He he created a garden. He put them in the garden to care for that garden and to be a part of the story that God was telling. But one day, the first humans decided they wanted to be the heroes of their own story. To put this in modern terms, they said, I want to find my true authentic self. Self Self-discovery. God, I don't want you to define me. I want to define me. And yet, as a result of that, instead of finding themselves... Apart from God, what they actually did was they ended up losing their true selves. Instead of being a part of the story God was telling, they wanted to be the hero of their own story, and as a result, they lost their home in God. Friends, you and I, we're all lost, too. We're the same thing. We do the same thing. We're all lost. Now, listen, do you have an individual self? Absolutely, you do. You have a self because you were created by a God with inherent worth, value, and dignity. You were created in the image of God by the God of the universe. The biblical storyline doesn't just affirm individual dignity, it's the very source of it. But if we follow our modern narrative and try to find ourselves, try to discover and define ourselves apart from God, what happens? There is no there there. You will end up lost and homesick because you were trying to be the hero of your own story. And even if you do believe in God, according to our modern narrative, even if you believe in God, God in our culture is just a consumeristic tool that you use as part of your personal journey of self-discovery. That's who God is in our culture. But here's Jesus. He's showing us something completely different. You know, um, Jesus is showing us what real redemption here is in this story, that, that real redemption means not finding yourself, but being found by God. That's what Jesus is talking about. Friends, he's showing us our desperate situation here, that every single one of us is lost. We're in a desperate situation, and none of us can rescue ourselves. You know, the coin in this parable, it can't find itself. The woman has to come looking for it. She has to go to extreme lengths to come looking for the coin. It's kind of like those classic mountain climbing stories they're always making books and movies about, where there's, you know, a group of mountain climbers, and then there's a tragic accident, and they all fall off the mountain and die, except for one person whose legs are broken. So they can't get off the mountain by themselves, and they can't even call for help because the radio's broken. And even if they could call for help, they wouldn't know where to tell people to come looking for them because they're lost. Somebody has to go to extreme lengths to come looking for them. Friends, the gospel shows us a God who goes to extreme lengths to come looking for you. And the ultimate place he did that was by coming to earth in the person of Jesus to come looking for you. Why were the religious leaders so furious at Jesus? It's easy to think, well, Jesus was eating meals with sinners. It's not just because he was eating meals with sinners. I mean, there were a lot of people eating meals with sinners. The Pharisees didn't go following those people all over the place. They did follow Jesus. Why? It's because Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of God. And if you've been with us, you may remember that the kingdom of God is this story that one day God was going to come and rescue the world from evil and renew the world, this material world, to a place of wholeness and beauty and perfection, the place it was created to be. You know, the religious leaders would have been very happy to welcome sinners back into the story of the kingdom of God, but they said, this is the way it has to happen. You have to come to temple you have to bring a sacrifice. You have to give that sacrifice to the priest and let him offer it for you. And then if you go through all of those things, then you can be welcomed back into the story of the kingdom. The reason they were so furious at Jesus is because Jesus was saying, I am the kingdom. I am the temple. I am the sacrifice. I am the priest. I am the fulfillment of all of those things. And anybody can find welcome back into the story through me. Friends, the only way that could happen is if Jesus was cut out of the story. Why is this world falling apart? Why is it that we're alienated from ourselves, alienated from each other? It's because we're alienated from God. It's because we want to be the heroes of our own story. We want to have control over our life. We, we want to belong to ourselves. That's why. But Jesus is the true hero of the story who paid the price for our betrayal against God, for our arrogant insistence that we want to be the heroes of our own story. Jesus is the true hero who was lost on the cross who, came, who went to extreme lengths to come looking for you on the cross. Jesus was lost so that rebels like you and me could be found by God and welcomed back with open arms, with the cheers of angels ringing in our ears, and with the face of the Father beaming on you saying, I missed you so much. Welcome home. Jesus gives us a redeemed picture of redemption, and that leads To our last point it's not just an exalted view of humanity it's not just a redeemed picture of redemption jesus also shows us a new picture of repentance because what does all of this mean for us today you and me practically speaking notice at the very beginning remember it said at the very end i'm sorry jesus said there is joy before the angels of god over one sinner who repents what is repentance You know, again, it's easy in our culture to, you know, have a kind of a distorted picture of this, but here's the thing. If Jesus has already given us a new picture of humanity and a new picture of redemption, do you think maybe Jesus is giving us a new picture of repentance here as well? Jesus discombobulates all of our old notions and ideas about this, because in our culture, it's easy to have this idea of repentance. Oh, that means that you beat yourself up for what a worthless person are, you are, and then you engage in a program of rigorous moral reform. Repentance means saying to God, I've been a worthless person. I've got to redeem myself in your eyes, so I'm going to stop doing all these horrible behaviors, and I'm going to start doing all these good behaviors. I am going to become a virtuous person Beat yourself up and engage in a program of rigorous moral reform. That's repentance. But the, repent, the, the word that Jesus uses here, literally, in Greek, it's the word metanoia. Literally, that means mind, or perhaps more simply, just new mind. New mind. You know, we talk a lot in our culture about mindset, right? Like you see articles, oh, how to change your mindset. Ten quick and easy steps. Change your mindset. Repentance just means you're getting a new mindset. Friends, that is a lot more than just moral reform. You know, um, is Jesus going to change the way you live if you follow him? Absolutely. If you follow Jesus, of course, there's going to be all kinds of moral and spiritual reform in your life. But think about this with me. The Pharisees were already deeply moral people. And yet we've just seen the main idea Jesus is is hammering through here is that he's calling the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to repentance every bit as much as he's calling the tax collectors and sinners to repentance. Why? It's because both the moral religious people and the immoral irreligious people, both of them are trying to be the heroes of their own story. They're just doing it in different ways. But both of them want to have control over their own lives. The quest to find yourself is a quest for control. But if you change your mindset, in other words, if you say instead of finding yourself, if if you're willing to allow yourself to be found by God, if you're willing to, um, to, uh, to surrender your own narrative about who you are and let Jesus tell you who you are, that, that's a way of surrendering control and saying, you know what? My deepest, truest, authentic self is way beyond my pay grade. God, you tell me who I am. God, you show me who I am. God, you help me and show me what it means to become the person you created me to be, because I don't belong to myself. I belong to you. You know, that's challenging for us in our culture, because again, the central narrative in our culture is that you're supposed to be the hero of your own story, but Jesus radically threatens that narrative. And understand, if you're anxious or apprehensive about this, what does that mean for me? Please understand, the Christian journey is still a journey of becoming the self you were meant to be. What it means is that you now learn to take your place in a story that is much deeper, much older, and much bigger than you are. Because Jesus is inviting you do something. He's inviting you to repent. Here's what this really means. Real repentance means you stop trying to be the hero of your own story and you take your place in God's story. Real repentance means you stop trying to be the hero of your own story and you take your place in God's story. That is a lot more than just moral reform. Now, if you're exploring faith, what does that mean for you this morning? I mean, this topic of repentance it's huge, but let me just start you on the path with this. Notice at the very beginning, it said that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. They were drawing near so that they could listen to Jesus. There was something about Jesus that was drawing them in. Are you homesick in this world this morning? What if instead of trying to find yourself, what if instead you became willing to be found by God? God. Instead of um, being in control of your own narrative of your life, what if you invited Jesus to tell you who you are? Again, this is radically threatening. It means giving up control over your life. It means giving up control over belonging to yourself. But if you do this, um, understand, look, if there is no God, then by definition you already belong to yourself and you can have that self back anytime you want. But if there is a God who created you, who knows you infinitely better than you know yourself, and who has goals for you that go way beyond your personal narrative about yourself, if that God exists, then real repentance means that you stop trying to be the hero of your own story and you take your place in God's story. That is terrifying, but there is joy, real joy, on the other side of it. And it begins with drawing near to Jesus and listening to him. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, what does this mean for us as the church? You know, um, one of the things we just saw was that this parable, Jesus told all three of these parables as a way of calling the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to repentance. You know, why were, the, um, why were the sinners and tax collectors drawing near to Jesus? It's because they found a welcome and a love and a joy that they couldn't find, they didn't find anywhere else in society, especially with the religious people in that world. There was, Jesus was so beautiful to, to them that they were drawing near to Jesus. You know, um, the earliest theologians of the church... Um, they looked at this parable, and they saw this woman with uh, a lamp as an image for the church, because the church is the bride of Christ who's called to be a light to the nations. Jesus has left his church on earth and, and called his church to be a light that makes Jesus so beautiful that people want to draw near to Jesus and listen to him. Friends, you know, a lot of times and especially with religious people, but with everybody, but especially with religious people, we can be so anxious that if we say one good thing about somebody, that means we're automatically affirming everything else about their lives, and God forbid we do that. So either we say nothing good about people and just criticize them, or before we say one good thing about them, we'll list all of the other things about their life that we disagree with, just so you know, When you read the Gospels, do you see Jesus doing that? Do you see Jesus coming to these tables and saying, okay, now, before I sit down at this table, let's make some things clear here and, and make sure that you understand all the ways that I disagree with the way you're living your life, now I can sit down at the table and welcome you and love you and be gracious and generous to you. No, you never see that. If Jesus does say something critical at these um, meals, it's almost always directed at the religious leaders who are being so grumbling against the the worthless sinners in their eyes. Friends, understand, is Jesus going to get to their lostness at some point? Is he going to talk to people about all the different ways that they're trying to be the heroes of their own story and alienating themselves from God, from themselves, and from others? Of course he is. But the reason they're willing to listen to Jesus in the first place, don't you see? It's the welcome. It's the love. It's the joy that makes Jesus so beautiful that they want to listen to him in the first place. How do we become people like that? Real repentance means we stop trying to be the heroes of our own story, and we take our place in God's story. Have you taken your place in God's story It means learning to see, oh, this is how people act in a story like this. It means we learn the way people act in a story like this is there's a welcome, there's a love, there's a joy that makes Jesus so beautiful that people want to draw near and listen to him in the first place. The only way we can do that is if our hearts have been changed forever by the true hero of the story who lost his place in the story so that we could take our place in that story forever let's pray father we thank you for just going to extreme lengths in this parable but really on every page of scripture for the extreme lengths you go to to come looking for us to come loving us to come welcoming us back into your presence lord help us this morning whether we're exploring faith whether we're skeptical about faith whether we're angry at you or whether we're trying sincerely to follow you lord wherever we're at this morning help us to find our place in this story, to give up our own narrative about our life and allow you, Jesus, to tell us who we are so that we can truly become the people you created us to be and so that we can go out in the world as vessels of this story that make you, Jesus, beautiful to the world. For we pray all these things in your name, Jesus.
0: Amen.